Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Barnett Berry. Barnett is a research professor at the University of South Carolina and serves as Senior Director of Policy and Innovation. His work in the 90s with the National Commission on Teaching and America's Future led to his founding of the Center for Teaching Quality in 1999, a nonprofit that focused on igniting teacher leadership to transform public education for more equitable outcomes for students. He is the author of over 150 peer review articles, book chapters, and trade journal publications focused on teaching policy, teacher leadership, and systemic change in education. His two books, Teaching 2030 and Teacherpreneurs, Innovative Teachers Who Lead But Don't Leave, frame a bold vision for the profession's future. Welcome, Barnett. Oh, it's great to be with you, Tanya. And I love the name of the podcast, Rebel Educators. Outstanding. <laughs> well, it's uh, designed to, to show that we're trying to push the status quo and resist the tradition that's happened for so long in, in teaching and in education and you know, push towards creating something new, whether that's small ways in a classroom or large ways in systemic change like you are. Well, it requires both bottom up and uh, some, uh, I'm not called top down, but push through (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, strategies. I think it's got to be a combination. I think Michael Fullen has some of the best language and conceptualization of what it takes for what is required for us to educate every child at the level he or she deserves. Well, can you talk a little bit more about that and share a little bit more about that? Like, I, I do want to go back to the beginning and hear about founding the Center for Teaching Quality, but I'd also love to hear about the research you're doing now on developing deeper learning systems and creating, you know, what the system of leading teachers needs to look like. Well, can I start with just a quick, probably way too abbreviated version of why schools which change all the time, but don't seem to fundamentally change in any serious way. Uh, While we continue to uh, see even very well-intended reforms fall far short of their mark. One is, and um, I'll give a shout out to Cohen and Maida here, effective reforms that really have stuck with us have met the felt needs of those who had to implement them. Another key principle along these lines is that in really the ambitious curriculum reforms that Dick Elmore many years ago documented that seemed to spread or scale, teachers saw themselves as working in or being part of an interlocking network of professionals who share expertise. We have not done one or two very well in this country when it comes to trying to really transform schools. And then finally, there's a third piece. I think too often we dichotomize the issues at play. It's either one or the other. Like, for example, do we focus on academic press 
or do we build a community of caring in our schools? It's like we have a choice between doing one or the other. Why not both? So those three uh, sort of principles of why schools have failed, school reforms have failed, excuse me, or seem to have failed, have prompted me to do much of what I've been trying to do for many decades, and that is advance the profession, makes all others possible so we can have a much more powerful and equitable system of public education. And it's definitely much needed. Our teachers and our educators in this country are professionals and have spent years studying and years working on the job and crafting their art and creating the things that they create in the classroom for our students. But you said a couple of things, you know, talking about ambitious curriculum reforms and talking about this dichotomy of can it be this or can it be that? It brings up thoughts to me of just all of the pressures that are on teachers that it's easy to talk about these things that, yeah, it should be both. And yes, it should be all these things. And yeah, we should try this new curriculum and that new curriculum. But it's continually giving them more and more things and different things to do all the time. So how do we provide that leadership and that training and that development and kind of decide what it is we're going to focus on? (laughs) Bless you for calling it out with poignant words there, Tanya, first and foremost. Yeah. And by the way, the most recent national poll, the Ed Week and Merrimack College just released on teacher's satisfaction shows that only 12% of our nation's teachers are very satisfied with their work right now. A precipitous drop from even 10 years ago when it wasn't so hot. Even then. Yeah, I think the one teacher, one classroom model of improving teaching and learning should be an artifact of a bygone era. And it still prevails in what Tayak and Cuban call the grammar of schooling. We just can't seem to get beyond the bell schedule, the singleton teacher in the single classroom teaching 25 or 30 or sometimes even more kids uh, in 50 or maybe even 75 blocks of time. We just kind of can't get beyond that, Tanya. And I think all the best intentions, all the best technology, all the most brilliant curriculum built upon what is increasingly a very powerful science of learning are always going to fall short of their mark if we don't rethink the profession. What does that look like? If we rethink the teaching profession, if we look at the way we're training, we're developing, we're looking at teachers as a society, we're looking at teachers as parents, what does rethinking that look like? Okay, so we don't prepare every teacher to do everything. We prepare teachers, yes, with some strong pedagogical evidence-based strategies, but we create and support an array of teachers and other educators, maybe many that are not even certified in traditional ways, to work in teams. And we support the team-based approach to working with children and families over time, by the way. So it's for the most part, many of the same team members work with the same kids and their families over time. I think we have much more sophisticated systems of inducting new teachers into the profession, not expecting them to teach the most challenging subjects to the most high-need kids in isolation from others, which we continue to do. We don't do that anymore. 
we think about teacher evaluation in a different way. And by the way, we've invested so much money in the last 10, 15 years on trying to make teacher evaluation more rigorous, and it hasn't made a difference. What if we had a system of teacher evaluation that valued the spread of teaching expertise as its primordial function? And then what if we started paying teachers differently based upon not a test score, but what they get accomplished, who they help get better, and what they can do as effective collaborators with growing numbers of folks outside the school, in business, in social services, in healthcare, and beyond? And how do we kind of create a system where teachers primarily are teaching, but are interconnected with a growing group of allied professionals and even university and technical college faculty partners and the like? And while this all may sound pie in the sky, and I've been criticized for many decades for, oh, that's not possible, Barnett. Everything that I'm describing is being done somewhere in the United States in some place. We just don't have the system that is so needed to really drive the deeper, more equitable outcomes that are so essential not just for kids' future, but my goodness, I, you would think now with climate change and the demise of democracy and the role of AI and big tech in our lives, a well-educated young person is needed now more than ever. Yeah, there's definitely demands on the next generation that will be different than any we've seen before. And how we prepare for that and create that is very much up to what we're doing today. We saw all of these things go away during the pandemic, right? We saw seat time go away. We saw individual classes largely go away in a lot of places. We saw the like the six-hour standard school day go away. We saw teachers work in innovative ways. And it's been a little disheartening to hear all of the talk about the change of education and then watch everything go back to a bell schedule in school as soon as they possibly could. It does leave room because there have been a lot of innovations in a lot of places and definitely some schools and districts that have done a lot more changing and a lot more innovation and brought in new programs that have been different than they were before. But I'm taking vigorous notes as you're talking, as we're looking at potentially launching a middle school. And I'm like, yes, a team-based approach to teachers. Like, what This has been rolling around in my mind. And what does that look like to not have one teacher that teaches one thing and one teacher that necessarily teaches another thing, but they have broad expertise, but also are very well-versed in one area. And so they, they can overlap and interconnect together as a team. And what does that look like when you mix grades and there's not sixth grade teachers and seventh grade teachers and eighth grade teachers, but instead there are middle school teachers and they all go through this collaboration of middle school together. It's super interesting to me. Yeah, I would give a quick shout out to my good colleagues at Arizona State University. Uh, and there was some partnership work they're doing with the Mesa School District primarily. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was fortunate enough as the trauma travels <laughs> associated with the pandemic seemed to ebb a bit a few months ago. Uh, got on a plane and spent some time with a bunch of educators at Stevenson Elementary outside of Phoenix. And they're just beginning this journey, even though they've been at it for 
a few years and started before the pandemic. They've got this team-based approach to uh, in their third grade. And this is in part because of teacher shortages. They have a lead teacher who's really good at many things, several other teachers, a paraprofessional, and two student teachers, but they're residents like teaching hospital where they actually get paid, not a ton, but more like a paraprofessional. And those, let's say seven adults are working with about 110, 115 kids. One of the teachers who had been teaching, like many teachers have always taught, in that one classroom with those 30 children says to me, my goodness, I know I know 110 kids better now as part of this team, what they're good at, what they care about, what they need to know, be able to do. I know them much better, 110 of them, than I did when I taught solo in a classroom with my only 30 kids. And then to put a cherry on top of the Sunday, she later says, oh, and by the way, we had no stress as a team teaching during pandemic. Which teachers in America could say they felt no stress teaching during the pandemic? Well, these st- teachers at Stevenson did. That gives me hope. There are examples where we've tried this before. In previous decades, team teaching was a thing in the 1960s when I was in elementary school, by the way, <laughs> in some places, but it went away. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that even with a group that large, they feel like they can really dig in and build those relationships. Because that's one thing we found in a small school is that it's been great to have classes of eight to 10 kids where we can build those interpersonal relationships among kids and among teachers and among all the different classes and really create that community at the school. This is where I'm hopeful technology, and you're right there in the middle of Silicon Valley and I've seen technology being used more to fix education as opposed to accelerate innovations in education. But that's that's another podcast. (laughs) Um, We tend to think of class size just in terms of that one teacher and whether there's 30 in there or 22 or some other number. There's some situations where class sizes could be 60 or 70 with the right adults in that room. There are other classes that ought to be seven or eight or even fewer. Uh, We've got to be much more flexible. And how can technology help us reorganize people, the heart of education, the adults who are facilitating and supporting the learning and leadership of young people and the young people themselves? I mean, how do we rethink how schools are organized and how we use technology inside of a school. We're always going to need really wonderful places, right? For young people to go to learn and to learn to get along, learn to be able to communicate more effectively with others, to collaborate with others, which is what business leaders say they want most in high school graduates, by the way. We need places that Young people go during the day and for some of them during the evening, but we need those places to be much more fluid and we need those walls and fences that separate classrooms from each other and schools from their communities to come down. We got to tear down those walls. And that's what this kind of whole child where it meets deeper learning need to come together in the future of schooling. 
what does that look like? If we could truly use technology for innovation and we were going to build, you know, that public school classroom of the future, what would that look like? And how would we define success of that classroom? Well, you can see some of it at kind of a, a North Star for deeper learning, high tech high in San Diego. It looks some of like that where space is created and teachers are increasingly prepared to lead kids in their own exploration of knowledge and the development of skills that they need. Okay, so it's, some of it is the open space interdisciplinary curriculum. And then it's the, this is where policy comes into play and governance comes into play and financing comes into play. Then there's got to be mechanisms so that those who are educating children, the primary educators of children, which are qualified sort of licensed teachers who are prepared for this type of work, are more connected to all the supports that young people need, whether it's from the apprenticeships that need to be tied to businesses both near and far, because like at Anaheim Unified High School, I'm going to give a big shout out to my friend and superintendent, Mike Matsuda, where there's you know, a third of the kids are in internships right now in that school district, and many of them virtual. So you got to build those part. That takes liaison work. It takes partnership development work. Same thing with working with social services and healthcare and parents who are homeless. We've got to have ways to really connect the lives of children and their learning to their academic success without having teachers do everything. We got to build a system that I will say looks a little bit more like an operating room. Well, I know there's only one patient at a time and teachers deal with many more than one at a time. But think about an operating room, the different doctors, the different nurses, the different technicians, the different technologists, the different assistant, all in there working together as a team. And I think that's what the future needs to look like. We began to paint some of this in our portrait and teaching 2030, my work that I did with, God, over a decade ago now, with 12 outstanding teachers from across the country. And it's a work in progress, Tanya. You say that every day. It's always a work in progress. I like the operating room analogy. And I see the teacher in that role kind of as the facilitator of making sure all of the pieces are working right. They're all collaborating, getting feedback from everybody on how did this go? Are we ready for the next step? What do we still need to work on? What maybe got missed? Yeah. That teacher may not be the best math teacher, but a one hell of a facilitator of mm -hmm. professional learning and leadership which need to be intertwined, by the way. We can't separate the two like we typically do in education. Every teacher can't do everything. We've got to really think about some group of teachers as generalists who are kind of dot connectors, curators, liaisons, community navigators, and then array of, of specialists, some of who are in the building, and many of them not necessarily in a building who can provide support to young people and their learning. Yeah, I think that paints a really great picture of what a teaching team could look like. From having a facilitator, creating that learning experience, creating community navigators and building that ecosystem of community professionals to support students, 
and then having the specialists in those really specific areas where you need really specific knowledge to be able to teach that and share that knowledge well. Yeah. Imagine even the dispensing of the bell schedule. I mean, yes, there's time for kids to eat and there's times for kids, yes, to play. We need to have recess for everyone. Science is clear on the importance of play in child and adolescent development, all of that. But imagine that we actually do so in ways that might look different inside of a school building. Some group of teachers who are working with some group of kids over time may have a little bit different schedule that they design with families in support of those children's learning. It may not look exactly the same for another teacher team in that same building and clearly not in the same district. It's not the one-size-fits-all factory model of teaching that Fred Taylor, the kind of godfather of scientific management in the 1920s, model of organizing the assembly line and managing people on it became the model for how we organize schools that are still with us today, point blank. That is the fact of the matter. Yeah, it's wild. That is definitely wild. And it's a good reminder for adults as well, because I know when I get engrossed into a project and I'm fully engaged, I forget to eat and I forget to go play. And those things are necessary brain breaks for all of us at all of our ages. (laughs) Yes. uh, There's a lot of talk about whole child, thank God. And whole child is about accelerating academic learning by attending simultaneous to a child's cognitive, behavioral, mental social, and emotional needs and strengths. I'm going to emphasize the word strengths. That's what whole child education is all about. And it means putting together an ecosystem in a community to deliver on that aspiration to teach children as whole children. But we do not get to whole child education at scale without tending to the whole teacher. There's a great piece that Charles Ledbetter did. He's an Aussie kind of scholar activist that basically speaks to, I think he called it the iron law of agency in student-led learning. He says, it is impossible for students to develop agency unless teachers themselves are agents, trusted by the school and the wider system to craft and design learning with students. He writes, students only become agents when capable teachers do as well. So I love your name of your podcast, Rebel Educator, teachers as agents of change. We've got to create space for them. We've got to socialize them for that. In our teacher ed programs, alternative and traditional, where do we socialize teachers to be agents of change? If we do, it's by accident, serendipity, not strategy. Yeah, it's definitely something that's come up over and over again. And being in a small school that promotes student agency, teachers are often a little confounded when they see how much freedom they have within our school to create and to build their classroom environment and to create an experience for students. And how do we support that so that more students and more schools and more districts can have that? Teachers have to be able to model what they're teaching and administrators have to be able to model that to teachers and it all flows that way. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you, One of my favorite questions to ask, being the leader of an elementary school, I really enjoy hearing people's experiences and the memories that they have from that time period. I had one teacher 
who, this was back in the 60s, Tanya, so I'm really dating myself here, in our basal reader, she would put rubber bands in the books to try to encourage us not to read more than we were supposed to be able to read at that time so she could keep us all on the same page in her daily instruction. Then a few grade levels later, I think it was Miss Rummins, who had a very different approach and used kind of a, a package program, but in a very creative way for us to kind of learn on our own, work in some small groups in kind of both competitive and collaborative ways at the same time, uh, who could like accomplish the most and who could help each other accomplish what entailed in that curriculum. And I'm drawing a blank. I can see the boxes. This was only uh, 40 years before Facebook goes public. So <laughs> we're not talking much technology. I think it was produced by SRI, believe it or not. But it was a curriculum that was designed for kids to kind of learn on their own and with each other uh, at their own pace. So I remember Mrs. T in my first and second grade who tried to keep me from reading more than I could read, which I just kind of did anyway. I just put the rubber band <laughs> back, of course. Such a rebel. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so that, those are two powerful memories of my elementary school back in the 1960s at Satchel Ford Elementary in Columbia, South Carolina. And we still have such differences in teacher styles. Oh, yeah. In fact, if we had more time and maybe I've um, got some great colleagues at UCLA Center for Community Schools, at, um, Karen Hunter-Quartz and Marissa Saunders and Natalie Finsterstock. We're working with my colleague, Peter Moya at the University of South Carolina. And we're studying what does a system of leading teachers look like for whole child education or community schools? And we've got two districts that have deep commitments to whole child and deep commitments to student-led learning, one in where I give a shout out to Anaheim Unified High School District. Check them out, please. Mm -hmm. Californians, uh, and then a fabulous school district just southeast of Vancouver, Story School District 36. We're studying how they're currently kind of supporting teachers as agents of change and what it might entail, how they might rethink kind of people and programs and resources and policies to scale up teachers as agents of change for a kind of future of schooling that we've been talking about today. And we're learning a ton. It's just, these are exploratory cases. Big shout out to the Stewart Foundation right around the corner from you in downtown San Francisco that's underwriting the expenses for these cases. And I'm, we're learning a ton. And I just early this morning finished up a little briefing paper for our advisory board that we're meeting with on Friday on some of the things that we learned. And I'll just give you a little teaser. One of the things that many teachers, especially the most the innovative ones, they really don't want to be called leaders. They'd rather be called instigators. And they see leadership from teachers more as really accelerating student-led learning and then helping their colleagues get better at it. They want to be part of a more flat organizational structure where Informal learning and leadership are valued, recognized, but not calcified. You know, oftentimes when we think about teacher leadership and leadership in general, in most organizations, particularly in education, we think about career ladders. And oftentimes for most teachers in the last 40 years when we've tried career ladders, and by the way, every decade we have a round of those 
innovations that come and go like stars in the night sky, but it's generally just for a few teachers to climb up a rung or two on a pretty tall and steep hierarchical ladder and does very little to really build a system that is needed where everyone needs to lead in some form or fashion in the future of most organizations, including and most notably schools. So we're, we're kind of coming up with some, I think, a little bit deeper understandings of what that system might look like. And um, it gives me great hope that we can kind of continue on this journey, which many like myself have been on for a very long time. Well, I think that's a great teaser for our next conversation. <laughs> There's so much more to talk about, but I want to say thank you. And how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to reach out and learn more? Simple email, barnettberry, one word, B-A-R-N-E-T-T-B-E-R-R-Y, at S-C dot E-D-U. And for your Californians, that's South Carolina, not Southern Cal. But anyway. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Barnett. This has been fantastic. Oh, thank you. Tony. I look forward to working with you some in the future. You are fabulous. And thank you so much for your leadership uh, and what you're doing to make labs better for kids and the educators who are teaching them. Likewise, thank you. Thank you everyone for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. <laughs>